Section 23 of Six Radical Thinkers by John McCunn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 6 The Political Idealism of T. H. Green, Part 3. For this is the paradox of human life. We find the ideal in experience or not at all. Where else can we find it? What other revelations are there but the revelations of experience? Yes, we find the ideal in experience, and yet we recognize it as more real than any or all of the particular experiences in which we find it. Yet the paradox is no mystery. When we see a common man living and working for what he means his boys and girls to become long after he has passed from their midst, or the citizen whose most cherished hopes, whose best energies are directed upon distant political or social ends, whose full fruition he shall never see, or a soldier whose life is freely rendered up for his country's cause, or a leader like Mazzini, who persists without faltering in the face of seemingly irretrievable disaster, it is reasonable to regard these things as evidence that individual human lives are borne along and upheld by a spirit that is working toward results far greater and more truly real than anything that has yet been reflected in the small mirror of actual human achievement. The very magnitude of dutiful demand which this spirit makes upon individual wills, and the entire willingness with which the citizen responds even to the most arduous of the demands laid upon him, unite to suggest that the ideals which with inexhaustible vitality shape themselves in finite imaginations are nothing less than attempts to give form and a body to that infinite spirit through whose indwelling energy the generations of mankind are swept along toward the realization of ends greater than they know it is thus at any rate that green regards ideals never are they to him mere forecasts guesses gropings projected by human imagination upon the darkness of the future they would be better described as revelations to human reason and imagination of that larger spiritual life in which every son of man participates and in which every thinking man may know that he participates for there are, according to Green, three great revelations of reality. The revelation through science, the revelation through creative art, the revelation through human action, and especially through that service of ideals by which life and history are made. One may not say that Green thought the last to be the greatest of the three, but it was not the least. To one who was full of sympathy with his fellow men, he says, the most welcome manifestation of the divine idea would be the political life of mankind. We are now perhaps in a position to understand why it is that there are two sides to Green's political doctrine. In one aspect, as we have seen, he is conservative. Tabula rasa and new beginnings have no charm for him. He neither vilifies the past nor belittles the present, and on this side he parts company forever with godwin and payne and bentham and all their following who through lamentable limitation wrote as if sympathy with their country's past history was treachery to the radical cause and respect for existing institutions 
and admission that the reformer's occupation was gone how could it be otherwise with a man to whom the political life of mankind was a revelation of the divine idea but then there is the other side for that overflowing gratitude for what the past has done for us that readiness to do justice to our social heritage as citizens of an ancient commonwealth that respect for existing institutions as the fruits of long experience even that philosophic conviction that all our noisy years are but moments in an infinitely larger life these things hang no weight upon green's aspirations for the future they have the contrary effect they inspire him with new hopes to his large outlook they become the first fruits and earnest of better things to come to him they are experiential proof of the presence and power in human affairs of the one everlasting spiritual principle which still speaks and will never cease to speak not only in the lives of the prophet and the reformer but in the unobtrusive civic patriotism of the humblest of their followers these two sides of green's political thought met in his own political life sober-mindedness was of the essence of his character he had a large toleration for men and institutions no one was less of a visionary the rush after the heroic the leap out of one's circumstances was to him no necessary condition of good citizenship there is no other genuine enthusiasm of humanity he once wrote when pleading for the reasonableness of respectability than one which has travelled the common highway of reason the life of the good neighbour and honest citizen and can never forget that it is still only on a further stage of the same journey yet there were times when that passion for the ideal that rational faith in the future which was always burning within him broke through the limits of utterance within which in the interests of sober practicality and from an instinctive shrinking from all large and loud professions it was ordinarily content to be confined with all his firm grip on fact as one of his friends remarks he had the enthusiastic movement of the world's poetry in him one instance of this may be found in the end of the essay on the value and influence of works of fiction he has been lamenting that modern fiction shows a grievous declension of the spirit of creative art it is a popular form of literature and in becoming such it has descended to a delineation of life in which the higher intellect can find no satisfaction comparable with what is furnished by the epic and the drama yet he will not believe this is permanent he cannot think that the popularization of ideas can permanently mean their degradation and so he goes on yet we hold fast to the faith that the cultivation of the masses which has for the present superseded the development of the individual will in its maturity produce some higher type of individual manhood than any which the old world has known we may rest in the same faith in tracing the history of literature in the novel we must admit that the creative faculty has taken a lower form than it held in the epic and the tragedy but since in this form it acts on more extensive material and reaches more men we may well believe that this temporary declension is preparatory to some higher development when the poet shall idealize life 
without making abstraction of any of its elements and when the secret of existence which he now speaks to the inward ear of a few will be proclaimed on the housetops to the common intelligence of mankind a second instance occurs significantly enough in the end of his address on the occasion of the opening of the oxford high school for boys the institution which next perhaps to his college lay near to his heart our high school then he said may fairly claim to be helping forward the time when every oxford citizen will have open to him at least the precious companionship of the best books in his own language and the knowledge necessary to make him independent when all who have a special taste for learning will have open to them what has hitherto been unpleasantly called the education of gentlemen i confess to hoping for a time when that phrase will have lost its meaning because the sort of education which alone makes the gentleman in any true sense will be within the reach of all as it was the aspiration of moses that all the lord's people should be prophets so with all seriousness and reverence we may hope and pray for a condition of english society in which all honest citizens will recognize themselves and be recognized by each other as gentlemen no one is likely to deny that these aspirations are worthy of radicalism at its best the misgiving in some minds may rather be lest radicalism may not prove itself worthy of them it is therefore natural to ask what the reasons of this sober-minded thinker were for his serious belief in the coming of a day when such things would be possible and this question will best be answered by examining somewhat more closely what green's political ideal was and more especially why it was so uncompromisingly democratic it is not necessary here to enter greatly into details these belong rather to green's political programme than to his political ideal and in any case there is nothing in the details that strike one as distinctive of green more than of some other radicals of this day bright appears to have been the politician of his time whom he most admired he admired him nettleship tells us for his belief in the moral responsibility of nations his love of the people his unclerical piety the noble simplicity and restrained passion of his eloquence and one of his friends while expressing the opinion that it was not likely that either bright or cobden could understand the process by which green's opinions were obtained nor the arguments by which they were defended has remarked that almost all his definite opinions might be endorsed by bright and cobden this is true a conviction that there were hardships and wrongs to be redressed a strong sympathy with the middle classes and the working men a frank acceptance of free trade a respect for nonconformity a dislike of ecclesiasticism a belief in parliamentary reform land law reform and national education in irish land acts and irish church disestablishment they are all found in green so is a deep sympathetic interest in american democracy not least there is a decided distrust of the kind of foreign policy associated with the names of palmerston and disraeli let the flag of england he once wrote in an early essay that has not survived 
be dragged through the mud rather than that sixpence be added to the taxes which weigh on the poor the outburst is startling and to estimate it aright one would need to remember the precise juncture in politics that provoked it nor would it be fair to press an utterance penned for the unguarded controversies of a private essay society it did not at any rate prevent him from taking cromwell as one of his heroes or of approving the armed coercion of south by north in the american struggle the fortunes of which we are told he followed with the ardour of a citizen soldier and the prescience of a strategist yet it remains significant of a peculiar detestation of war and of a conviction he labours at much length to prove it in his latest work that war always implies culpability somewhere in which he is not surpassed by either of the twin leaders of the manchester school the point of distinctive interest therefore in regard to green's ideal is not the details but rather those larger features of it not to be found in bright or cobden upon which the details the common property of many radicals will be found to depend foremost amongst these is the stress he constantly laid upon social and political institutions no political writer ever valued institutions more there used to be a significant emphasis in the very way in which he pronounced the word and we have partly seen the reason why for like burke for whom he had a profound admiration he saw in his country's institutions as we have seen no mere secular product of many human minds and many human wills but rather the results of the action of that universal spirit that divine tactic as burke called it which through the instrumentality of human wills operates throughout the whole history and growth of states yet it is not for this reason solely or even mainly that he values institutions be it family or property or political party or church or legal system or charitable organization the value of each and all turns finally on what it does and promises to do for the lives of citizens no one could be less disposed to turn an institution into an end in itself no matter how imposing its history or more disposed to insist that institutions exist for men and not men for institutions he joins hands here with the utilitarian radicals like them his face is to the future like them his eye is on results like them he believes that institutions exist for men like them he magnifies the public good barring its hedonism against which he waged a lifelong war he does generous justice to the practical value of utilitarianism as a political creed but there is a difference for whereas with it the emphasis is laid on happiness with green it lies unmistakably upon the development of individual character the value of the institutions of civil life he says in his principles of political obligation lies in their operation as giving reality to the capacities of will and reason and enabling them to be really exercised so far as they do in fact thus operate they are morally justified this is a characteristic passage it touches one of his strongest convictions the conviction that institutions justify their existence only in and so far as they live in the lives of men or if the phrase is permissible are born again and ever again 
in the souls of citizens it is a needful doctrine because it is so constantly forgotten for institutions is a word which sets the mind running to buildings officials endowments charters constitutions perhaps also founders records and traditions well and good but these things do not constitute an institution in its essence they may all be there in institutions that are antiquated decaying or dead one thing is still lacking the life the spiritual bond for the essence of an institution be it a friendly society a political club a charitable organization a learned society is that it is the material embodiment of some settled planned end or purpose in which many minds and many wills unite and find a meeting ground for action it is not even by what it does for the world outside of it much as this may be that we ought to estimate an institution the still more conclusive criterion lies in what it is doing for the wills and characters of those who in union of thought sentiment and purpose are the institution through participation in its life it is after this fashion that green regards institutions he vitalizes them he humanizes them he moralizes them as we read his pages they cease to be mere pieces of social structure or bits of social mechanism they become instinct with life and will nor is it ever enough to prove that they exist for the public good or the greatest happiness though that is much to be able to say not at any rate till we are able to translate these large abstractions into terms of the concrete good of individual citizens who already or in days to come will stand upon the earth the common good is doubtless an imposing phrase and green constantly makes use of it so is greatest happiness so is humanity they have all done duty often enough as watchwords and generalizations nor is there any reason why they should cease to do so but let no one think that he understands what they truly are as actual objects of value endeavour and sacrifice till he has learnt to look through the symbolism of the terms and to see behind them the lives of men this is the essence of green's teaching here it comes to light decisively in the prolegomena to ethics where he is discussing the nature of the ultimate end the suggestion is there made that the ultimate end is the good of the nation in a sense green does not dispute it he was convinced that no life worth living is possible without institutions and that the life most worth living is that which finds at once its nurture and its sphere of realization in that supreme institution the organized state as disciple of aristotle and hegel he was quick to see that the individual becomes an abstract figment if set over against society in a spurious independence and impossible isolation the comparatively atomic individualism of mill is far from him but he was equally convinced that the nation in its turn is an abstraction no less delusive if it be erected into an end in itself in forgetfulness or subordination of the individual lives which in organized union are the nation his words leave us in no uncertainty the life of the nation he writes has no real existence except as the life of the individuals composing the nation or again in words that are even stronger as they are more sweeping 
to speak of any progress or improvement or development of a nation or society or mankind except as relative to some greater worth of persons is to use words without meaning a nation it is true and even a specific institution within a nation may call upon the citizen to sacrifice himself even to life itself green was the last man to dispute it nor was there any reason in his doctrine why he should contrariwise for the justification of such sacrifices never terminates in the added wealth power prestige or stability the nation may gain by them all these things like the nation which they characterize are themselves abstractions eviscerated of their real content until they are translated into terms of betterment for persons somewhere and somehow the truth is that according to the teaching of the prolegomena there is but one place in which by reason of its very nature the ultimate good for man can reside because there is but one place in which it can find realization and that is in the wills and characters of individuals for the good as green conceives it is a spiritual good a dutiful attitude of will a right state of character and however many the material conditions it may need as its instruments it is in the lives of men and women that it can alone find its dwelling-place this is the ultimate ground of what we may fitly call green's individualism it has no kinship with the individualism that suggests an attitude of hostility to governmental interference nor with the impossible individualism of self-regarding acts as taught by mill nor with the individualism implied in the benthamite conception of society as an aggregate of units yet if it be individualism to see habitually in every political movement the fate of human beings and in every controversy over institutions the weal or woe of fellow-citizens then there are few more declared individualists in political philosophy than green End of section 23